We are doing a series this month for the summer actually called Law and Order, and uh, we're going to be going through uh, the book of Judges uh, and maybe a little bit of Samuel too, but we're going to, we're going to be looking at this season of uh, the, the life of the children of Israel, the nation of Israel when it was in its earlier stages, about a 450-year stretch or so of the, uh, the nation of Israel and, and what all they went through. And it's actually an incredibly intriguing book, probably one of the most intriguing books of all the Bible. It has a little bit of everything. It has uh, betrayal. It has peace. It has murder. It has sexual abuse. I mean, it's really got a little bit of everything. It's a, some of it is actually horrific in seeing the depravity of man uh, through God's chosen people. Uh, we see a lot of the depravity of man, but we also see the character of God through all of this and his mercy and his grace. I know some of you might be thinking, why are we doing a, a whole series on an Old Testament book? Isn't the Old Testament just you know, old stuff that doesn't relate to us anymore, no way. Uh, in fact, you're going to see Jesus in the book of Judges. How many of you know Jesus is in the Old Testament all through it? He's in the whole Bible. The whole Old Testament points to him, and we're gonna see his character and who he is in this Old Testament and in, in the book of Judges, and we're also gonna see the character of God too. So I'm actually really excited about it. I, I actually love the book of Judges, um, and uh, studying it leading up to this as well, I, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. I believe you guys are too. It's gonna it's gonna be something that's gonna really challenge you uh, because you are gonna see Jesus in it. You're gonna see his forgiveness, his love, and his mercy, but you're also gonna see yourself in this book. We're gonna see the, the depth of, uh, of our need for a savior. And what God did through the book of Judges, he would raise up these judges. He raised up 15 judges that were kind of the saviors of the people of Israel to bring them into places of peace. And uh, he used these people. They were very, very imperfect people, but he used them for his glory. And, but it set the stage for him to send the real savior later. And uh, we're gonna look at all of that over this time. So I'm really excited about it. My prayer is that you will see yourself in this and see the Lord's faithfulness and his character as well. In fact, I wanna encourage you over, these, over this time we're doing this to, to read through the book of Judges. Maybe you've never read it. Uh, maybe it's been a while. I would encourage you to read it. It'll, it'll help you to even know what we're talking about here. Obviously, we'll have verses here that we're using on the screen, but um, it's not a long book. It's about 21 chapters. You could read it in an hour um, or you just read a little bit at a time, but... Uh, It'd be good to stay up on that too. So I wanna encourage you to read this book over the summer. All right, so let me get to my text first. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would, please, as we honor God's word together. Judges 2, 16 and 19, it actually kind of gives a, an overview, a whole synopsis of the book of Judges. So this, these passages here, these verses here will show you kind of what Judges is all about. It says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away in which their fathers had walked the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So that tells you what we're gonna be talking about for this next little while. The, the title of my message today is A Vicious Cycle. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I pray that your word would be illuminated in our hearts today, that you would, would do what you wanna do in each one of our lives, everyone listening today. And we pray that you'd be glorified in it. And it's in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. 
So let me just take one minute, minute and a half here just to set the context of the book of Judges. I don't wanna assume that everybody knows the book uh, well, and uh, some of you may just need a reminder, but Judges is a book in the Old Testament. It's between uh, Joshua and Samuel, and it, it gives this 450 to 480 year stretch of time in the land of Israel, in the nation of Israel. Now that's a long stretch. It can, you can easily read this and think, oh, it probably lasted 10, 20, 30 years. It was over almost 500 years that this, was, this book covers. You know, and We as a nation here have only been a nation for 247 years, I think. So this is a lot longer than the United States has even been a nation, this book covers. And it shows the cycle that uh, the Israelites go through, and I'll share that in a second. But uh, it, it, what, what happened was in, in the context and the timeline of the nation of Israel, that the Israelites had been in Egypt for 440 years as slaves. God raised up Moses, brings them out of Egypt, but it doesn't take them into the promised land, the land that they were promised to have. They stayed in the desert for 40 years because of their own sin and disobedience. And Moses brings them right up to the promised land, but not into it. And then Moses dies, Joshua is raised up, and Joshua actually takes them into the promised land. And when they go in, they were told to annihilate everybody in there. I mean, it's, it's brutal. They were told to get rid of everyone, not because the people were terrible, but they were doing idol worship, they were doing child sacrifice, all kinds of detestable stuff going on God. So when you go in, get rid of them, because if you don't, they're gonna end up affecting you and causing you to turn from God. And so he tells them to go in. And when Joshua's with them and they go in, they do that. They're taking, taking out everybody in every area they go into. But Joshua died before all of the land was taken. And so now we get into the book of Judges. Joshua just passed away. And the Israelites are living there. And they start out at peace because they've been doing what the Lord says. But then they quickly veered off of the plan of God. And they start going through this cycle. And you see it over and over and over again in this book. In fact, we made a graphic just to kind of give you a visual to see what this cycle looks like. And what it is, it starts off where they're at peace because of what Joshua did, and they eventually get into sin because they don't get rid of everybody. They start assimilating with some of the Canaanites, and they start taking on their religion, and they fall into sin. They grieve God, and because of their sin, God removes his blessing from them, and next thing you know, they're oppressed again, just like they were back when they were in Egypt. Now they're in their promised land and they're getting oppressed because of their sin. And they're oppressed because of their sin and next thing you know, they end up crying out to God. They, they repent. They go from oppression to repentance. And every time they repent, God raises up a judge for them and this judge delivers them from the oppression that they're dealing with at that time. And they go back to having peace. And then it starts all over again. <laughs> they, they fall into sin again, they're oppressed again, they repent, God raises up another judge. You see this cycle continually through the book of Judges. It's amazing how often this happens to them. And what you're seeing in here is that you're seeing the character of man and you're seeing the character of God and also how God functions. And it's relevant to today too in many ways. And we'll, we'll talk a lot about that over these next couple months. The cycle that they're going through though is a distinct and prominent principle that shows us the character of God and the character of man. And one of the biggest things that shows us that I wanna kind of focus on today. I'm gonna to kind of give an overview of all of this today before we get into specific judges moving forward. But one of the principles this shows us is the principle of sowing and reaping. You see that they are sowing sin and they are reaping oppression. And then when they sow repentance, they're reaping deliverance. Whatever they sow determines what they reap. And you, I'm sure you've heard the term sowing and reaping. That's something that uh, you can clearly see even in today. In our life today, there's a lot of sowing and reaping. And sowing and reaping is about choices and consequences. The choices we make 
determine the consequences that come from those choices. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. We sow and we reap in our life. And life is full of tough choices. So we do a lot of sowing because every time you make a decision, you're sowing. There's tough choices all the time. Choosing what major to have in college. Choosing whether or not to start a business or stay at the job you're at or move to another job. Determining where you're gonna eat lunch after church. That's a tough one. There's all kinds of tough choices that we have to deal with all the time in our life. And in hindsight, typically we will see what those choices caused in our life. You know, that's why they say hindsight's 2020. I'm like, oh, I can see why this happened to me because I remember this back here. But you can't always see it moving forward. So we have to depend on the Lord's wisdom to be able to make the decisions he wants us to make. And we know that God sets us up to have to make choices in our life. God set that up, that there would be choices to make in everything that we do. And we understand it in the practical, but it's also very prevalent in the spiritual. Everything spiritual in your life comes from choices. You had to choose salvation. You had to choose whether or not you were gonna love Jesus. You had to choose whether or not you were gonna trust Jesus. If you're gonna serve Jesus, if you're gonna, if you're gonna reject the worldly ways and serve Jesus, you had to choose whether or not to do that. Everything about our faith is about choosing. It's about sowing and reaping in our faith too, just like it is in the practical sense. Last week I was talking about Romans 8 and how the, the fact is that God wants us to have freedom, but we have to choose that freedom. We have to choose to trust Jesus. We have to choose to not be a victim when we are followers of Jesus. It's all a lot of choices that we have to make. And we understand that that's part of God's character, that he would have us to make choices. But did you know, and this might get up in your theology a little bit, but did you know that sometimes God will put difficult choices in front of us? He'll put us in challenging and even difficult circumstances to force us to make a choice. That not only does he allow difficult things in our life, sometimes he ordains them. Sometimes it's his idea. Now don't get me wrong, if, if, if there's abuse in your life, it's not that God put that abuse in your life. It's not things like that, but it's when we get into situations where we know it, where it's challenging and tough, and we have to make difficult decisions, sometimes God's actually the one that puts those there because he wants us to have to choose. In fact, you can see in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, this is where Moses was talking, but Moses was the mouthpiece of God for the children of Israel during his time. And it says, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So God is setting before them life and death. He's setting before them blessing and curses. Why is he doing that? Because he wants us to choose life and he wants us to choose blessings. He wants us to make the choice for these things. A loving God doesn't want robots that are walking around with no option but to love him and to choose life and blessings. He wants people that will love him and choose him. That's his heart for us. Another, another very prominent aspect of the character of God is that he wants our hearts, not just our obedience. And we get that if we think about that for just a second, because I know it's easy to think, man, I wish God would just make us do this and make people do this and get rid of all this other stuff. But we really don't have that anywhere in life. Why would we have that in the spirit? You know, you, nobody wants to be married to someone that's like, you know, I don't even really like you, but I'm gonna stay with you because I signed a piece of paper. Nobody wants that. That would be the emptiest and most mundane marriage on the planet. 
You don't want your spouse to stay with you because they know it's the right thing to do. You want them to stay with you because they love you. You want them to be with you because they enjoy being with you and enjoy doing life with you and raising a family together and, and doing vacations together and spending time together. That's why you want that. You, that's what you want from a spouse. That's exactly what God wants from us. See, we're created in the image of God. And he wants us to choose him just like we want our spouse to choose us because of their heart and because they want to be with us. That's exactly what he does. In fact, he wants our hearts so bad that he is willing to let us suffer to get him. That's how badly he wants your heart, church. He wants your heart and he will let you suffer so he can get your heart. In Judges 2, if you go down just a couple verses after my text verse, starting in verse 21, look what it says. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. He's saying, the Lord says here, I'm going to use these nations now to test them because I want to see if they will continue to obey me. Basically, I want to see if they'll continue to love me and serve me. So I'm going to allow them to stay in their path. I'm going to force them to make difficult choices by allowing these people to stay. The same people that God said earlier, hey, I want you to go in and wipe them all out. Now he's saying, actually, I'm gonna let them stay because of their disobedience, but he's letting them stay because he wants to see if the children of Israel will actually serve him. You know, God told Noah when he came off the boat, he said, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. As long as the earth remains, there will be sowing and reaping is what he's saying, always. And we get that, right? In the natural, we understand that. You gotta, if you want a tomato, you gotta sow a tomato seed to get that. But it's also in the spiritual. As long as the earth is here, there will be sowing and reaping for all of us, naturally and spiritually in our life. It will never, ever, ever stop. And you see, we are becoming more and more accustomed to reaping more than we sow in life. We live in such a blessed society with so many advancements, so much technology, so many niceties, that we've become, in some ways in the practical, we can kind of beat the system. And I'll, I'll show you how. Credit cards are a way of beating the system. It's a way of getting something that you didn't, it's reaping something that you didn't actually sow to get. You're not waiting until you can pay for it, you're gonna, it's a promise that you're gonna pay for it later. So you're reaping what you didn't sow. In the medical field, we have ways that you don't have to take care of yourself nearly as much as you used to have to because you can do stuff that you know is terrible for your body, put things in your body that you know are not good and end up having a horrible heart attack, but now they can go in and put a bunch of stents in and tear open your chest and fix your heart and let you have another 20 years of life. So you're actually not reaping what you really sowed because of the technology and the advancements we have in our world. And, and that's not bad. It's not, a, it's not a terrible thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things. I'm thankful for those things but we get to kind of cheat the system. But I can tell you today, you're not gonna cheat the system of sowing and reaping when it comes to your spiritual life. You're not gonna cheat it. I mean, I love the fact that I don't have to actually plant a garden to eat vegetables. I love that, because I do not wanna work a garden. When I was a kid, we had a garden, and my job was to pull the weeds, and it was child abuse. That's all I have to say, horrible. I didn't wanna get out of school, because I was like, well, I just gotta go home and pull weeds. So I was like, I'm never having a garden when I'm older. The only garden I'm going to is the climate-controlled one in the Kroger. 
where I can go get my carrots and my cucumbers and all that stuff. I love that, that I don't have to sow that to reap that. So that's a good thing. But when we try to skip over sowing in our spiritual life to reap, we're out of order. There are no spiritual super Kroger's out there. But that is what we want a lot of times, isn't it? That's really what we want, is to not have to reap what we sow and to just have God come into a situation and fix it. You know, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that the best way to get victory in your life, the best way to have deliverance in your life is just to have God show up. I mean, how many times have you asked God to do that? How many times have you prayed that? God, if you would just show up, if you would just show up, you could fix everything. God, you can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. I mean, we say that all the time. I, I pray that all the time. And there's nothing wrong with praying that or believing for that unless we are doing it because we don't wanna have to put in the hard work of sowing. Like, God, I really don't want to eat healthy or take care of myself or get the sleep that I need or, or set boundaries in my life. I just need you to just kind of supernaturally give me some energy during the day. You know, I mean, that's a very superficial thing, but there are a lot of other deeper issues that will say, God, I just need you to, I need you to help me forgive this person. I don't wanna go through the hard work of actually determining and choosing to forgive. I want you to just melt my heart and make it to where I don't care. Where we just want him to show up rather than to actually sow into it. Now, when he does show up in those supernatural ways, it's beautiful. We love that. We're thankful for that. But that can't be the only way. It can't even be the number one way that we're looking for God to do work in our life and to reap the benefits of serving God in our life. God will purposely leave challenges in our life to test us to see if we will follow in his way. So what I wanna do today, I wanna give you some truths that, uh, that can help us break this cycle that we see from the Israelites because there is good news. You don't have to stay in that cycle your whole life. You really don't have to stay there. But we have to understand the cycle, understand what causes us to get in that place in our life too. So the first truth that I wanna give you is that sometimes blessing can breed complacency. Sometimes blessing can breed complacency in our life. Now, not always. I am not harping on blessings and saying we shouldn't look for blessings. Absolutely not. I am as thankful as the next person for the blessings of God in our life. But sometimes, if we're not intentional and if we follow the pattern of the Jews here, we see that we can become complacent in the midst of the blessing that God gives us. Blessings can actually be a double-edged sword because we have a situation where we need deliverance. We're being oppressed, whether, whatever it is. If it's something internal or if it's something external in your life, you're being oppressed and you need the blessing of God and you cry out to God and you experience his blessing, the tendency is to be thankful for it, to be really excited for it for a minute. And then the tendency not long after that is to become complacent, to actually even forget the source of how you got to where you were or to forget what it was like before that blessing came into your life. And so blessing can actually breed the complacency that we so don't want in our life. You know, let's look at, at Western culture. I know I talk a lot about the, the modern Western church, okay, because that's who we are and that's what we deal with. And there's tons of blessings that come with it, right? We live in a culture where we are so blessed. We have so many advantages in our life, so many conveniences that make things easy for us. If you don't know that, if you've never left this country and gone to a developing nation, I encourage you to go somewhere into a developing nation for just a few days. You'll see very quickly all of the stuff that we don't have to deal with. And it's a huge blessing. And we're, well, I'm thankful for it. And it, it is the blessing of God. I believe that. It's absolutely the blessing of God on us. 
But we could also say that the most complacent church in the modern world is the Western church. And that's not 100% across the board. Not everybody in the Western church is complacent. I'm not saying that. But as a general rule and as a whole, there's no question, it's undeniable that the Western church is much more complacent than churches in developing nations. I've been there and I've seen it. And I've seen people excited about their faith in ways that you don't see here a whole lot. People with a lot less than what we have that are really, really excited about their faith. And it's very interesting. And it makes me think, is there a correlation between the two? Is there a correlation between the fact that we are so blessed and we are complacent? I think when you look at the scripture, I think it's blatantly obvious that there's absolutely a correlation. There's absolutely something that can make us be so complacent in our blessing. In fact, what you, can, you can look at what we go through in our lives in the church, in the United States, in the Western world, and you can see that the, the blessing of God has been on this nation. And that we, it seems like as a nation, in a lot of ways, we're seeing it move into more of the sin part of that cycle. The complacency is breeding sin because that's exactly what complacency does. It is a breeding ground for sin in our life. When the children of Israel got their peace from the judge that came in and that judge died, they became complacent in that peace. And the complacency is the breeding ground that breeds sin in our life and makes it to where it can be such a challenge for us in our life. In the nation of Israel, it happened, by my count, six or seven times at least in the book of Judges where they did this cycle. But personally for us, it can happen to us monthly, weekly, yearly. We can continue in that cycle. And a lot of times complacency comes after the blessing in that cycle because of the fact that we're just enjoying the blessing. There's, a, there's an example in the New Testament. The church in Laodicea. It's a church that Jesus is rebuking in Revelation 3. And he says very clearly in verse 17 of Revelation 3, look, look, look what it says. It says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I do not need a thing. This is the church of Laodicea church that they're saying we don't need anything because we are so, so blessed. Do you see that? That blessing came from God because it's the church and they're, they're talking about and bragging about how blessed they are. And if you know the rest of that verse, Jesus says, what you don't realize is that you're poor and wretched and that you're in desperate need. But because of their blessing, they became complacent because they started to put their trust in their blessings. They put their trust in their blessings and that is what absolutely what affected them in that way. At least six times in the book of Judges, it says that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They fell into sin. And just as many times after that as it says that they would cry out to God. It's literally what it says. They would cry out to God in repentance. They're repenting for what's going on, for what they're doing in their life. And God would show up for them and he would raise the judge up to deliver them. But it's interesting because if you read the book, you'll see that the crying out stopped after they were raised up. After they were delivered, there was no more crying out. It was complacency. It was slipping into other religions and it, it drew them into sin and eventually to where they were oppressed again, over and over and over again. They didn't need him because they were riding the momentum of the blessing. See, when you get a blessing in your life and the Lord shows up and he does something in your life that's really great, you get momentum from that. It gives you kind of a boost in your faith. 
But momentum in faith is actually an incredibly dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous thing in faith. It's not bad, but it can be dangerous. Now, momentum in natural life is wonderful too. You know, if you're, on a, if you're riding a bike and you're going up a hill and you get to the top of the hill and you get over the hill and you get to start going down the hill, that's really great, isn't it? When you get to ride, you get to, you get to just coast and you're getting to enjoy the fruit of the blessing, which is the downhill. And everything seems easier when you have momentum. It seems easier than it really is. And everything seems harder than it really is when you don't have momentum. But if you just ride that momentum, you get down to the bottom of the hill and you level out, you can continue to coast for a while just because of the momentum you had from the blessing. But if you're not working along with that and still pedaling, eventually that momentum's gonna run out and you're gonna find yourself sitting still. And then you're gonna have a lot more work to get going again. And when we, and we do that spiritually all the time, we, we ride the momentum that we get from a spiritual blessing in our life and that, that blessing is not meant to be everything for us, it's just meant to be a boost and it becomes everything and next thing we know, when the blessing is gone and the blessing is used up and the, the emotion of the blessing is gone, suddenly I find myself dead in the water. I find myself stuck, not knowing where to go and not knowing what to do. Momentum can be a really good thing until it's all we have. And what happens is if, if we just live on the momentum, if we live on the blessing and we become complacent because of that blessing, if, if that's all we're looking for and that's all we're doing, we eventually, what we have is a one-dimensional faith. We have a one-dimensional relationship with Jesus. And there's a whole, there's a whole uh, market out there in church work for one-dimensional relationship with Jesus. It's about all about what he can do for you. It's all about the blessing. It's all about how much God loves me and how much God can do for me. And when you get that blessing, it gives you some momentum and you get pushed along and you're feeling good. Everything seems easy because you're riding that momentum. But how many of you know, eventually that blessing wears off? Not that it goes away, it's just the newness of the blessing wears off, just like anything else, and then you're stuck. We're not meant to have a one-dimensional relationship with Jesus. It's meant to be multi-dimensional. It's not meant to be just the blessing, it's also meant to be the sowing, that we sow into the relationship with him too. It's meant to be two-dimensional, where it's a give and take, where he gives to us, but we're also giving to him, where we're giving him our life, where we're giving him our trust, where we're giving him our faith, where we're giving him our sin, we're giving him our, all of our fears, our worries, we're giving him everything, and then we're reaping. But too often times in our spiritual life, we wanna reap without sowing. We wanna skip over the sowing. God, just give me another hill that I can coast down. I just need another hill. If you can give me a hill, then I'll coast for a while, I'll be good. And God's saying, I've actually put pedals on the bike for you. Because it's not meant to be just on the blessing and the momentum, because blessing can easily produce complacency in our life. A healthy faith is one of giving and receiving. That's what a healthy faith looks like for all of us. All right, so that's the blessing. The next truth that I wanna give you is that disobedience brings discipline. Disobedience brings discipline. This is not revelation for us, right? If you grew up in a home or you went to school or you have a job, you know that disobedience will bring some form of discipline in your life. Amen? So we understand that to a degree. But it's important that we understand that and we live that, that we, we live in such a way that we understand it in our spiritual life too. Let me read in Judges 2. I'll go back all the way up to the top of that chapter in 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, 
and said, this is, this is the Lord speaking directly to the people of Israel. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. You have, why have you done this? Now, therefore, because you've disobeyed me, here comes the discipline. I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Disobedience brought discipline to God's people in this setting. See, they were supposed to clean house when they went in, but they didn't. They were afraid of some of the people. They, so one of the nations had a bunch of chariot, metal chariots so they didn't think they could beat them, so they let them kind of live and they just kind of assimilated with them. They were supposed to go in and break down all their altars, yet they did not do it. So they were reaping what they sowed. And it's easy to think that, yeah, that's fine and good, but this doesn't really apply to me spiritually because I live in the new covenant. I live in the new Testament and I live under grace. So I don't live under the discipline that comes from disobedience. Grace is, gives me, it gives me what I don't deserve. Grace washes away my sins, right? I mean, we, we know all the terms that the Bible talks about with grace and, and the terms that the Bible doesn't talk about that we just made up about grace. And what we do is we either misunderstand or we misapply grace, thinking that disobedience bringing discipline doesn't apply to us. And I can tell you today, unequivocally, that Jesus, by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, raising from the dead and ascending back into heaven, did not eliminate discipline from disobedience. It didn't abolish it at all. In fact, if anything, it enhanced it. You see, what happens is, and we see it from this cycle, is that God's grace followed the repentance of the, of the Israelites. See, grace is not just a New Testament concept. Grace is all through the Old Testament. The grace of God for his people is seen all over the place. In fact, guys, put the graphic back up. It will show. It starts out with peace. They go into sin. Then they get oppressed, right? And then they go from oppression to repentance. And then repentance brings in deliverance. Where do you think the deliverance came from? It came from the grace of God. They were getting what they didn't deserve. That's God's grace. That's, that's the rawest form of God's grace there ever was. When you don't get what you deserve and you get what you don't deserve. What they deserved was the consequences of their sin, which was oppression. They repented and God poured out his grace on them and brought deliverance. You see grace clear as day in this Old Testament passage and in the, in the book of Judges, you see it working. But what you see is that his grace always followed repentance. Grace followed repentance then and it follows repentance now. Great, the grace of God follows the repentance of his people. God's grace does not abolish discipline. It abolishes condemnation. Amen? The grace of God abolished condemnation for his people. Last week, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guess what? Those who are outside of Christ Jesus, there's a lot of condemnation. There's eternal condemnation at the end. So, but for us, there's no condemnation. That's what the grace of God did. It did not eliminate discipline. The discipline of God is still very active for us when we disobey. But the discipline of God is always to bring us to a place of repentance. This was the discipline of God. It's always to bring us to a place of repentance, eventually to take us to where his grace can be poured out and we can be delivered from whatever the situation is in our life. 
If it was just about grace in our life, if everything was about grace, then there wouldn't be no such thing as sowing and reaping. It would just be reaping. You just get to reap. I sow whatever I want. I'm still gonna reap the grace of God. I'm gonna reap the blessings of God. I'm gonna reap his eternal favor and, and everything that's wonderful about the character of God. That's what I'm gonna reap. Doesn't matter what I sow because it's all about grace. And church, there is a large movement going to that that believes that, that it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus died, he loves me so much. I'm just gonna walk in his grace. We just celebrate his grace. Let me tell you, we're in a month right now where our country is celebrating sin. We're celebrating sin, church. We are not called to celebrate sin. We are called to love everyone in the homosexual community. We are not called to celebrate sin. Just like we don't celebrate greed, we don't celebrate gossip, we don't celebrate selfishness, we don't celebrate sin. But the argument with all of that is that God's grace is just so good. He just loves me no matter what. Uh-uh. God's grace follows repentance in your life and in mine. God's grace, there's enough grace of God to save every human on the earth that's ever lived and then infinite amount more, right? We all believe that and agree with that. Yet tons and tons of people are not receiving that grace and are on their way to eternal separation from him. Why is that? Because they lack this. Right there, that's it. That is what pours the grace of God out in your life. The repentance, not saying God just overlooks all of it, it's all good and fine. It's when we repent. It's when we give ourselves to him. Now we're still gonna experience the discipline of God though, we're still gonna experience discipline in our life, but it's gonna be discipline to bring us to him, not to condemn us. In fact, Hebrews 12, five, I love it. Look what it says. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. New Testament. New Testament right there in black and white. And it's actually really beautiful because it says that he punishes and disciplines the ones he accepts as a son or as a daughter. Those are the ones he does that to. See, he punishes us, if you're a believer, he punishes us to get us back to the grace. But if you're not a believer, if you're not in his house, if you're not one of his children, you know what there is? You get what the Canaanites got, which was to be utterly destroyed. It's the condemnation. God disciplines his, and he condemns those that aren't his. So being disciplined and punished by God is actually a really good thing. It tells me that he loves me. Discipline's a really good thing. I grew up in a household where I was disciplined a lot. And 99.99% of it was really good. At the time, I thought about 0.9% of it was good. But in hindsight, I look back and I go, thank you, God, for parents that disciplined me and brought me back and helped me to find the way that I was supposed to walk. If you were disciplined healthily in your home, it was a good thing. And that's exactly what it is in the spirit, too, with your heavenly father. Who, who, who else on this earth is going to discipline you perfectly other than your heavenly father? No one. He's the only one that can do it. And it's a really good thing when he does. But disobedience will bring that discipline in our life. Okay, third and finally. Repentance precedes deliverance. Now, I've already touched on this a little. But the cycle of judges that we see here is that God clearly and freely offers his deliverance to people after they repent. 
Church, I cannot emphasize this enough. I, and I feel like I talk about it a lot, I probably do. I need to ask Joy if I talk about it too much, but I feel like it is so missed in the church today. We have this idea that repentance is the thing you do to get saved, and that's it. Or if you really, really mess up. That is a lie. The, the first repentance you do to get saved, that's the biggest one for sure. That's the most important one. All the other repentance doesn't mean anything if you don't have that first one, where you repent of your sins and you give your life to Jesus and you accept what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He writes your name in his book. That's pretty cool. That's the biggest repentance. You need that one first. But then to think we just go on our merry way and we don't have to live lifestyles of repentance is absolutely contrary to God's word and it's contrary to any logic that, it, that would make sense of walking this out. What if you just, one time, when you were 15, you did a, had a big mess up, your parents sat you down, rebuked you, confronted you, and you said, I repent, I'm so sorry. And then you just lived the rest of your life doing what you wanted. And if your parents came to you, you said, well, I repented 20 years ago, remember, I was 15. It's ridiculous. Yet we think we can do that in our faith. It's like eating a meal, you eat a nice big meal and you're full, to think that meal doesn't mean a whole lot to you three months later because it's long gone. You can't just eat once and think I'm good because I had a good meal. You have to continually do it. It's the same thing with repentance because we are continually prone to walk away from God. We're continually prone to live for ourselves. We're continually prone to let the sin in our life rule the day like we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. Jesus said, when you pray, this is what I want you to say. Forgive me for my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. Forgive me, Lord. This should be a daily occurrence for us. Not that we have to nitpick and micromanage and try to figure out every little thing we've done wrong, but repentance is about laying your heart before God and saying, God, I know I messed up today. I know I messed up today in ways I don't even know. I'm sure I had thoughts I don't even remember I had that were not good. God, I need your forgiveness. Forgive me as I forgive those who've sinned against me. Forgive me, Lord. And living a lifestyle where we are constantly laying ourselves bare before God and saying, God, I need you. I need, your, I need your grace today just as much as I needed it yesterday. I need it more today than I needed it yesterday. And I'm gonna need it again tomorrow, but I'll, I'll meet you tomorrow and tomorrow. And continually live in such a way that we are continually repenting because the deliverance that you are looking for in your life comes after the repentance. The grace of God is poured out after the repentance. Some of you have been dealing with stuff in your life for years because you just won't repent of it. You're just asking God to fix it, and God's like, I want you to give it to me. Don't just ask me to fix it, give it to me. Repent of it, change your mind, turn around, go the other way. I mean, it is, it is his standard operating procedure to pour out his grace in the wake of repentance. Now, you'll find a couple places in the word, very specific examples where the grace of God was poured out on someone before they repented. And they actually repented afterwards. You know, I think of uh, the woman caught in adultery where they were gonna stone her. You know, he, his grace saved her life before she ever did anything to ask for him. These are very, very specific examples, though. God was teaching the Pharisees a lesson here. And he did a few things like that. But as a, a huge general rule, the way he operates is that his grace is poured out in the wake of our repentance. And this applies to me because I'm not perfect and my life is not perfect. And I, need to, I want to reap the blessings of God in my life. I want to reap the freedom of God in my life, the rescue from bondage in my life, the, the rescue from oppression, from the things that weigh me down, from the Canaanites. I want him to move in my life in such a way. So that means I need to be reminded to repent, to live a life of repentance. 
to live a life of coming back to him constantly and submitting myself to him. Because here's the deal, church. No matter how many times I submit, I am really, really good at unsubmitting. I submit to Jesus all the time. I surrender to him all the time, vocally. But man, it's amazing how good I am at unsubmitting to him a little bit later. And you know, we, Joy and I, our kids are, are getting older now. They're 21, 19, 17, so they're getting to that age where they kinda, their life's taking on a life of its own and we don't see them as much and sometimes we don't even know where they are and it's easy to worry about them because when they're little, they're in your home at night and you know where they are and you can make sure, you know, as long as they don't put their finger in a socket, they're probably gonna be okay. But when they get older, they're out, they have, they're driving and they're spending time with friends and they're going places and there's times we don't even know where they are and you can't control it, you can't fully protect them and you can get anxious and worry and think, oh my gosh, I remember when I was that age, oh, Lord, don't let them act like I did. And so we have to, Joy and I have to constantly say, Lord, they're your kids. I give them to you. I trust you with them, Lord. You love them more than I do anyway. You can protect them better than I can anyway. Lord, I give them to you. Ah, that feels good. A few hours later, we're on Life 360. Where are they? Where are they? Why is he over there? Noah, what are you doing? That's, that's if I call him. If Joy calls him, Noah, how's it going? She's a simp for her little boy. <laughs> That's all right, the girls have me wrapped, so it's fair. Uh, but, but it's like we submit, we surrender, and then we unsurrender. That's just what we do, church. That's who we are, we're humans. You got a brain in your head, that's what you're gonna do. That's why it's a lifestyle of repentance, not a, hey, I repented one time at an altar. I remember it was July 3rd of 1967, and man, I cried. It was really cool, so I'm good. I can do what I want now. The Lord's gonna just forgive me for everything. The children of Israel were his people. They were his chosen people, just like you are. We were grafted into the family of God, into the, the Israelite genealogy by being saved. So we get the treatment the same as they did. We get the same treatment that God did for them. He blesses. If we fall into sin, we fall into oppression, we repent, his grace is poured out. It's that simple. It really is that simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it really is that simple. Let me read James 4, I'll close with this. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Hallelujah, praise God. Yes, thank the Lord. The message of this verse is very clear. For the Lord to lift you up, you have to surrender yourself to him. He says here, you don't have to be perfect for the Lord to lift you up, but you do have to be clean. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Wash your hands. How do we become clean? By just being really good? Hiding my sin better than the next guy? No. You don't become clean by being perfect. He does not looking for perfection, church. He's looking for clean. How do you become clean? 1 John 1, 9, one of the best verses in all the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What brings the cleansing? Confessing my sins. John, 1 John 1, 9, New Testament. He's talking to Christians. 
If I confess my sins as a Christian, he is faithful and just to cleanse me, which means he will lift me up, which is what I want. That's exactly what I want. And you should want it too, because it is absolutely beautiful when we are clean before him, not because we're perfect, but because we know how to lay down our junk and give it to him. We know how to give it to him and not keep it. Praise God. Would you stand with me, please? Thank the Lord. I wanna pray for us this morning, this afternoon, sorry. And I just want you to respond. You can come to the altar if you want. You're welcome to come up here. I wanna pray for you. But I think all of us need to respond in some way. If it's just at your seat, if it's just holding out your hands, if it's going to your knees, if it's closing your eyes, I wanna challenge you today. We don't have to live in this cycle. We don't have to live as, as they did. We have the same mind and the same heart as the Israelites did all those years ago. But we do have something they didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. If we are followers of Jesus, he is in us. And that is the power in us to live for him. We have a huge advantage. Doesn't mean we won't mess up. Doesn't mean we won't stumble and fall. But we can be quick to respond to his word, to the call that he has on our life and to do what he has called us to do. So I wanna ask you to commit today. Commit to breaking this vicious cycle in your life. There, there are some of you here that have been dealing, you've been in the oppression phase of the cycle for a long, long time. And for some of you, it's because of the sin that took you in there. You've just never repented of it. You, you think, oh, you know what? I've repented of it too many times. I've done it too many times. There's no way God's gonna forgive me again. I'm just gonna ignore it and hope he just gives me kind of a, a free pass when I get to meet him in, the, in heaven. I just can't do it anymore. I, I feel so bad. I'm so tired of it. I'm not even gonna deal with it. I'm just gonna try my best not to do it, but you continue to fall into it and you just won't give it to him. You're, you're staying in that place of bondage and oppression because you refuse to just repent. When the reality is if we will just repent, that is what... That is what powers the grace of God to come into our life. Not only to forgive us, but also to give us the strength to overcome it. That's what he does. And that's who he is. That's the God we serve. He's so amazing. He's so wonderful. Know the word and know the truth. Because when we know it, the enemy is defeated. We can, you know, the, that verse I read in James, it says, it says, resist the enemy and he'll flee from you. But did you notice before that it says, submit to God? You can't resist the enemy if you're not submitted to God. It's impossible. He's, the enemy's stronger than you. He's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. He's better looking than you. He's everything more than you. But if you submit to God, you get the power of God in you to resist the enemy and to flee from him. That's what he wants for you. Stop trying to do it on your own. Please put the, the cycle back up again because I want everybody to see it. Wherever you are in this cycle, you know how to get to the next step. Let's do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I thank you for your word. It is truth. It is life. It breathes, literally breathes life into our spirits. Thank you that your word is alive and active. It is a double-edged sword. Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord. I thank you today, God, that it is your spirit in us that helps us to defeat this vicious cycle. It's not preaching. It's not teaching. It's not determination. 
It's your spirit in us that even helps us to make the good choices, the choices to serve you, the choices to, to not become complacent. Lord, forgive us where the blessing in our life has caused us to be complacent and we've gone into sin. Forgive us, God, for, for thinking that we don't deserve any discipline when we've been disobedient, God. Help us to not despise your discipline, as Hebrews tells us, but to embrace it because we know that you discipline us because you love us, just like a good parent would. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you so much for disciplining us. Thank you for punishing us. Thank you for not condemning us, but for drawing us to you, God. I thank you so much today, Lord. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts right now. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if he's not your savior, then you have to, then, then the, the, the way to get to that place where he is your savior is to do that first repentance, where we turn from our ways and we give our lives to Jesus and we trust him to forgive us and we, we believe in him that he is the savior of the world and that we turn from all the sin in our life and we give everything we are to him. The Bible tells us that if we confess him with our mouth and we believe in our heart, that we will be saved. And when, when we're saved, that's it, we're saved. And then it's just a journey of living out this faith life. Do not leave this place today without committing your life to him. He's worth it. Best decision you'll ever make in your life. Lord, I pray that you would move on the hearts of all of us today, Lord. For those that maybe today have walked away from you, maybe backslidden, and have been stuck in the oppression phase of this cycle for years maybe. God, I pray your freedom today, Lord Jesus. We thank you that your freedom comes through the repentance. So God, I pray no one would leave this place today without having given everything to you and changed their mind and turned their back on their sins and trusted you for the forgiveness, for your cleansing. You are the one that cleans us. You are the one that makes us white as snow. And we thank you for it today, Jesus. We love you and we bless your holy name. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Yes, praise God one more time. Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. We serve a wonderful God. Walk in the freedom that he paid an incredible price for you to have. It's up to you. Make the choice today.